0: Time for another episode of pats from the past podcast matt smith pleased to be joined by uh one of the all-time great patriots former tight end russ francis all the way up from connecticut thank you for coming up here and really
1: appreciate your time great to see you You're, it's great to see you matt thank you for having me
0: so for the newer fight patriot fans who might only think of tight ends and rob gronkowski i don't know how accurate this is but russ francis was rob gronkowski before gronk um, <laughs> Averaging, you know, sometimes 17 yards a catch. Famously known or coined the phrase by all-world announcer Howard Cosell, Russ was the all-world tight end. If you're watching Monday Night Football and listen to the halftime highlights, that's how Cosell called Russ Francis. On two of the great pre-craft Patriot teams of all time, 1976 and 1978, unfortunately, they never got a chance to win it all. Russ, before we start talking about your football career and everything, I know you're living in Connecticut. Why don't you tell, let Patriot fans know what you're up to these days?
1: Well, first of all, uh, you mentioned Br- Gronkowski, Rob. What, what a monster he is. I mean, he, there's a guy that can do everything. So I just wanted another Patriot tight end, which I'm very, very proud to tell people about uh, from time to time. Uh, I'm in Hawaii part of the time. I'm in Oregon, family. Uh, got a place in Cody, Wyoming, and as you mentioned, in Connecticut. So I'm still traveling, I still love to do that. Visit family, visit friends. And I run into fans all over the place. Not just Patriots fans or 49er fans because of the time I spent there, but NFL fans, sports fans, Red Sox fans, which is one of my favorite things to do, go to Fenway. So it's a pleasure, I mean, to be here at Gillette Stadium, I feel like I just walked in on my first day after being drafted. Do you think, Russ, when you look
0: back at, you know, your kind of unassuming origin into the game of football, did you become a football player by accident almost? You know, it wasn't like you grew up as a kid and were looking at, you know, old black and white tape or anything, and you know, one day I'm gonna be a football player. It just sort of happened. Why don't you, you know, help educate fans as to how the origins of Russ Francis football player came to be?
1: Well, my mother was a nurse, Number one, she had five boys and a girl. And the boys were not going to play youth football or any of that stuff. She was way ahead of her time with brain injury and that type of thing, orthopedic injuries. So it wasn't until high school when she said when your bones stop growing or they're close to stop growing. And my oldest brother, uh, Bill, who's almost three years older, he loved football, so he kind of dragged me into it. I really didn't want to play. You know, I'd rather be at the beach surfing. I mean, I just, or sailing or something, anything but football. Because you're growing up in, I should, we should
0: remind people, what state are you from? From the
1: Hawaiian Islands. Right. Yes. So I um, came from a real different background and come to New England where they're very, very, very serious about their sports. And they were very, very, very serious about their Patriots. And I didn't know anything. My teammates wanted nothing to do with me because I had only played one year, my junior year uh, in football. Didn't play my senior year and all of a sudden I'm here on the practice field. Luckily, my teammate, Ray Perkins, put me in with a training camp and then on the road was Daryl Stingley, uh, God rest his soul. And Daryl taught me how to read coverages, run routes, and Perk made sure that he did. We did it before practice, we did it after practice. So I was very, very fortunate. I think the number one thing when you ask of how do you develop uh, becoming a football player, starting as a rookie, it was Steve Grogan also starting as a rookie, you have to have people all around you, like my coach Ray Perkins and Red Miller in the line, Ray as receivers, then Raymond Berry as receivers, Chuck Fairbanks, Ron Earhart, offensive coordinator. Such a great group of guys. You can't help but learn. I'm a self-taught incompetent, so I look to the highest level I can find if somebody knows something, and then I start drilling them. How do you do this? How do you do that? The University of Oregon recruited you in Hawaii to throw the javelin. Is that correct? Well, actually, The University of Oregon canceled their baseball program due to Title IX, so I was going to go play baseball at the University of Oregon. Middle of my senior year in Hawaii, my parents tell me my brother's going away to college with his girlfriend, I've got to go back to the ranch in Oregon, so I'm going to finish high school there my second year. Javelins are illegal in Hawaii, as they are in many states, spears, so I'd never seen one. Guy goes walking by after the basketball season, I'd just gotten there, I threw it, it shattered in the, in the parking lot because I thought I could reach the grass. A little overconfident. And the coach said, listen, you can either pay me $152 or join the track team. Since the baseball team was not my guys, I said, OK, fine. So because of this coach, who's one of the top track and field coaches in the United States at a small school, Pleasant Hill in Oregon, of 480 kids, um, I set the national record three times. Mm. He was a javelin thrower himself. So we started by just hitting paper. I said, can I throw it down the field? No, just through the point, through the point, through the point. Having people like that in your life, all across the board of your life, is how any, anybody succeeds. You don't do it, a small part of it really is you. People say, oh, you're, you're a good athlete. You're, you're, you're this, you're that, you're big, you're strong, you're fast. None of that counts. If you don't start putting all the information, if they're not willing to give it to you, it's game over.
0: Who was your roommate at the University of Oregon that was also on the track team?
1: When I first got to the University of Oregon, the coach, Bill Barman, who ended up becoming the 1972, this is 1971, 1972 Olympic track and field coach for the United States in Munich, Germany. Many people remember the sort of disaster that that was. The guy that he put me in as a roommate uh, on the road uh, came up to me the first day of practice, ran around, little guy, Running around the track, running around the track, running around the track, going up downstairs. And I'm trying to learn how to throw the javelin some more. He comes over, he goes, Here, let me show you how to throw that. He's about 5'8, five, 5'7, five, about 120 pounds, left-handed. And he grabbed it and he threw it, and kind of threw it sideways. He goes, oh, I used to throw it better in high school. <laughs> he says, You got to get that left foot down better. And I said, Who are you? He goes, My name's Pre. I said, Didn't your mother like you? <laughs> yeah. That old story. And he says, Steve Pre Fontaine, like I was supposed to know. Well, he was well known around the world at that point. I said, "Nice to meet you, Pre." So let me finish throwing the javelin. So I didn't know it, but he had gone to the coach. The coach had talked. He said, "This guy needs a seasoned member of the team as his roommate to help him out because he's he's got issues." Me, and he was right. I was lost. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm 20 miles, 25 miles from the ranch, and uh, uh, didn't know anybody in town, and. Pre introduced me to everybody. He became a dear, dear friend.
0: So, you well, played one year of collegiate football at the University of, Air, of Oregon, great, you know, good conference, top talent, and you were drafted 16th overall in the first round by the New England Patriots. Was that Steinberg who was a GM back yes, then? Yes, yes. And tell the story like, well, he was set were, of
1: personality. Right.
0: He, when yeah. you were found. When you found out you were drafted, did you think they'd reinstituted the armed services draft? Like, you didn't even know what the NFL draft was, right?
1: My brother comes down from the ranch house, I'm in the snow feeding cattle. We had a bunch of cattle, we worked at two other ranches, so you had a busy day feeding cattle every day, hauling hay in the summertime. This is January, when the NFL used to hold the draft then. He comes zimbling down, and he's the responsible one, became a policeman, my oldest brother, Bill. And he says, hey, you've been drafted. you got to get up to the phone. They're waiting for you. And I said, they can't do that again. They, get, they had the lottery back then. And he goes, no, you idiot. It's the NFL. I go, tell them I'm, I'm, I'm play, I've been drafted in the fall. This is January by the Kansas City Royals to pitch way down. I think it was ninth round or something like that, maybe even farther down. But I wanted to play baseball so bad. So I said, no, just tell them I'm, I'm not going to play. He goes, you tell them. So I said, well, tell them it's going to be two hours before I'm through feeding. i got to go back to the barn and get hay and all that stuff. Go there, and the phone's hanging, swinging. I said, Bill, what's going on with the phone? He said, they're still waiting. And I don't think the coach, his name is Chuck Fairbanks, is very happy. Oh, and Mom had just come over from Hawaii. She just walked by to see what's happening with her boys, just keep on going. She wasn't sure what was going on, that it was a football team, because she would have said, let me talk to him. (laughs) But I get there, and it was Ernie Adams, um, who's been a fixture here with the New England Patriots. Since then, he and Nancy Meyer, two of my best friends and buddies, we're all rookies together. And he said, uh, yeah, Coach Fairbanks is pretty hot. He said, you might want to start out kind of slow. Ernie, just tell him, pleasure meeting you, Ernie. My mother's working on her boys. I said, please just tell him, we don't need to talk. I'm going to play baseball. Because you're going to have to tell him yourself. Ernie was kind of like this. Anyway, so Chuck came on, he says, you're on a plane tonight to Boston. I said, you know, I really can't do that, Coach. I've got to feed cattle. I've got class, summer classes and graduate early at the University of Oregon, pre-med. And um, my, mother, he, my mother goes walking by. He said, is your mother home? Put mom on the phone. She says, yes, Coach. Yes, I understand. And, okay, fine. I'll tell him, but it's up to him. It's his decision. He'll call you back. Click. She said, listen, my recommendation is that you get to go first class tonight, get into Boston tomorrow morning, meet with the coach, let him have his say, then tell him whatever you want to say that you're either going to play or you're not going to play, but do it in person.
0: That's really good advice, by the way.
1: And I said, and that's how mom was with the the boys. I said, mom, I got to feed cattle. I got classes and everything. She goes, Bill, Billy, uh, you're taking Russ's cattle. I don't know what he can do for your classes. Maybe he can sit in for you but you're, you need to go. I said, Mom, I, I just, I don't have time. She goes, you know what's at uh, Boston? Because she knew her son, all of her sons. I said, no. She goes, and you'll get to see it? I said, no, what? Fenway Park, the green monster. Oh, that's right, the Red Sox. You think I'll really be able to see the Red Sox? Ernie drove me over to the Fenway when I first, when he picked me up the next day.
0: When you look back at that, Russ, and you think about it, like, it sounds like a kid who, Football wasn't a priority to you. You had other things going on in your life. Here comes this surprise phone call that you have no idea really what it means or anything like that. How, when you look back at that and how that was a defining moment in your life for taking a turn that you really didn't know what you're getting into by saying, you know what, I'm gonna hop on the plane and go to Boston and see what happens. Do you ever look back at that and reminisce about like, you know, how important that moment was in your life.
1: Well, my mother, my grandmother, my father, grandfather, our, our whole family, it was all about making your own decisions. So she's gonna give you some advice and she's gonna give you some backup reasons or ideas or thoughts. Then you get to think about it, mull it over, and then you make the decision. I came really close to just say, no, I'm just gonna stick with baseball. You know, plus I'd been accepted by a couple of colleges to vet school um, here in the Northeast. Um, so um, uh, I came really, really close to saying, no, I'm not going to. I'm going to go spring practice for baseball. And I never would have done much, I don't think, in baseball. <clears throat> as a pitcher, and I could throw really fast, especially after throwing the javelin. I had no idea where it was going. Football, and baseball, too, is more of a team. They're going to deal with the top players they have. They'll develop you as they can. Either you can or you can't. In football with Ray Perkins, it was every day working with me, catching the ball. Raymond Berry saying, <clears throat> those threads that come to the point of the ball, what do you see with those threads? I said, I see threads, coach, when you throw me the ball. He was a very, very cerebral kind of kind of coach. And he said, keep looking, throw me the tight spiral. So finally, one moment, it hit me. And these are the people I get to work with. And I'd already played three years in the league, and I was doing pretty well, Pro Bowl and everything else. I drop a pass every now and then. I went to almost zero drops when he said, look at the uh, threads coming together at the point of the ball. It forms a black dot. When you turn your head around, and Steve Grogan has just thrown that ball, or Joe Montana in this case, and it's already on its way, and you have to pick it up, if you pick up that uh, football, it'll go right through your hands. You just can't get to it. If you pick up that dot, you can stop it. And I went, son of a gun, coach jam fingers later, but finally. That's the kind of coaching I had. Teammates like Darryl Stingley, you know John Hanna, Leon Gray, um, Shelby Jordan, uh, God rest his soul. Um, Steve Nelson, the guy, Steve King, Steve Zabel, the, the three Steve aderos I call them, the linebackers for the Patriots. They were so good at detail stuff and getting better every single day. Then you go with a guy like Bill Walsh, where they wrote the book, They Call Me Genius, Well, that was for a reason, the West Coast offense um, and Joe Montana and all those guys that that were on that team, Roger Cragen, it was an honor and a privilege. The chance to do broadcasting, we were talking uh, earlier with Al Michaels and how great he is. I got a chance to do college football games with Al Michaels. We'll get to that. one of my heroes. Right. And I just say that based on these are people that walked into my life. I had no idea they were coming. I'm a self taught incompetent, so I'm here to learn. I learned that from my flight instructors and I learned that from my parents.
0: So here you come as a first round draft pick, 16th overall in the draft. You're coming to an area you don't know. You don't know any of your teammates or anything like that. I think you've said to me off camera that, um, you know, there's a little bit of a bullseye on your back. What was it? Was it, you know, not that it wasn't a welcoming environment or a nurturing environment. Certainly the coaches, um, uh, it was important for them to see you develop and develop well. But as this hot-shot first-round pick with a bunch of veterans, was it a difficult transition to transition into pro football?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, Tommy Neville, who was a starting right tackle at the time, before Shelby Jordan the next year or two, Tommy's towards the end of his career, a really honorable guy, you know, from Alabama, um, I think. M- Alabama, Arkansas, I could never... Hogg would get upset if I said Arkansas, so I started doing it on purpose. John Hanna from Alabama, John. Uh, he came up to me the first day of practice. He goes, listen, my name is Tommy Neville. I'm the right tackle. You'll be playing tight end next to me from time to time. I just want you to know I'm rooting for the, for the veteran, Bob Windsor. Don't come to me with any questions about how to run your plays or how to block or anything else. You either figure it out or you're out of here. That was my welcome. Now, I've always admired uh, Tommy Neville because he told me exactly how it was the first day. Straight shooter. He, he, straight shooter. And you have to make the adjustment. And I think knowing Tommy later and talking to him after he retired, he said, "I wanted to see what you were made out of." He said, "So you kept coming back." He said, "That was all right." And Bob Windsor got hurt, so before the season, and Bob Adams got hurt, the second string guy, so I'm starting as a rookie. <laughs> the guys are going, "Oh my goodness," you know. So, and two, two games later, Jim Plunker goes down, so Steve Grogan comes in and said, "What do we do?" He goes, if I do this, because I don't know the plays when he calls them in the huddle, just run straight. Just run down the, that's where I got the yardage my first year and they kept throwing to me deep. Was it lonely, Russ, a little bit? It it wasn't lonely from the standpoint of, I've learned to be comfortable in my own skin with my own company, kept myself busy. And then in the off season, I went home to, I flew the airplane back to Oregon, hopped another commercial plane to Hawaii and started a charter service air the state's first civilian air ambulance service and the helicopter service in Hawaii. No, I wasn't lonely. I had my airplanes.
0: So, and those airplanes came into play as a NFL player, you know, back in the day when you started training camp in July and you had training camp for 9 weeks and it was real training camp, not like what the players are accustomed to today. Two days, and you were telling me that there were sometimes there were 3 days early on, but let's let's focus on the two days. Practice in the morning, you'd hop in the plane and go to the vineyard for lunch?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I did. I went to the vineyard for lunch because it was a college environment, Bryan College. The, the food wasn't that great. And my mother and grandmother were great cooks. So I was told that there were great restaurants on the islands. I grew up on an island, so I gravitated towards the island. So I kept my little airplane that I bought with my bonus signing bonus, a Beechcraft Sierra. Uh, and Flew to the vineyard, flew to Nantucket, and every once in a while a player would say, hey, can I come with you? Well, we're supposed to be eating lunch with the team, socializing, but I didn't get along with it. Not that I didn't get along, I didn't know anybody. And then you're supposed to go take a nap and rest up and get ready for the three o'clock practice. Well, I'll go to the vineyard, just have a nibble of this or some really good, or some lobster or whatever, go walk on the beach. And then um, fly back, fly back to and get no nap, don't need a nap, and go in and get dressed and go to practice. That
0: that would be unusual today. Had to have been unusual yesterday. Did you get the sense that you were maybe developing this, you know, I don't know, you're a nonconformist. You know, I'm, I'm going to follow your rules. I'm not going to break any rules or anything. But you know what? There's certain things that I want to do. You know, and as long as I'm not hurting anybody or breaking any team rules or anything like that, I'm going to do it. Where, where did you get a quizzical look, and then maybe some other player said, "Hey, that's pretty cool." To your point, can I come with you for lunch?
1: There was um, their their team, their game, their rules, and I followed them for the most part. They wanted me to tape ankles, I wouldn't do that. They wanted me to lift weights, I didn't do that. I was a little precocious because my mother had taught her boys. I developed. If you, if you tape an ankle too tight, you restrict blood flow, range of motion, it becomes like a cast and you atrophy. You actually weaken the ankle. Go run in the sand. Go run knee deep in the water, which I did in the off season. Lifting weights, muscle becomes greater than the tendon it takes the tendon right off the bone. The muscle supposed to tear first. So I said, guys, I, I, just, so I guess in that way, I was kind of a handful. But I Aside from that, my mother taught us to live our lives uh, our own way and make our own decisions and judge listen to good ideas and even criticism constructive criticism Consider it because we are all self-taught and competence Learn the right way to do something if you really have joy and passion like I did for flying They called me in mr. Sullivan Billy Sullivan Chuck Fairbanks Peter had hazy the general manager of my rookie year, when they found out I was flying this is before taking the guys this is when we're going to Amherst for summer camp. They found out I was flying down out of Norwood. They said, "You have an airplane here that you flew back from Oregon, and you're flying it on your days off on Tuesday, up to L.L. Bean, and you you can't do that." In the standard player contract, it says if you get hurt, um, you know, uh, if if you can't play, your insurance isn't covered, and, and you don't you stop getting paid. I said, first of all, in airplanes, if there's a crash, there aren't any injuries. <laughs> so, but I understand what you're saying, so I apologize, and I'll clean out my locker. And they said, what? I said, well, he just fired me. I thought they'd fired me, because they were adamant. Chuck Fairbanks was a was a pretty steady guy. Loved him, you know. He great coach. Uh, miss him as well, along with the other guys. But I thought they'd just fired me. So I learned a very important lesson. I said. Well, I'll get my locker cleaned out and everything else. They thought I was, I'll just take the airplane and go, which wasn't what I meant. I had I had embarrassed them. I had done the wrong thing. I felt bad about it. I really did. So I was going to pick up and go. They said, okay, wait a second. Just don't talk to the press about it. Just don't do this and don't do that. So pretty soon I learned, if you're playing hard enough and you're learning quick enough, there's just about anything that you want to do, within reason, I, I wasn't doing anything crazy. I didn't go out drinking at night. I wasn't running around with girls. I wasn't, you know, my girlfriend from high school was my girlfriend. Um, I was focused on being the best football player I possibly could. Ray Perkins made sure of that and so did Red Miller. So I'm honored to say that uh, I gave everything I had and continued in any time I've ever done anything with the New England Patriots. That's why I came back to see Pete Brock when he retired as the uh, alumni president, he's meant so much to us guys over the years and the fans of running that whole organization. I couldn't let them have a big party without me to say so long to Pete, and he's gonna, like the rest of us, we'll be back. Can you imagine
0: if there was a player of your magnitude today in this social media world that we live in that was flying a plane, I mean, they don't have two days, so that couldn't happen, but like, it would cause such a stir, and if you can look back on it and say, wow, I was able to do that, maybe, to the point that you were saying about your parents and your mom, live the life that you want to live. Right. Be respectful. Right. Don't, you know, you're not going to commit crimes or anything like that, but live your life. Maybe it was a simpler time back then where you were allowed to do that, and it's just, it's unimaginable that something like that would ever be able to be allowed today.
1: You know, even back then, no social media, right, no internet. Um, Somebody saw me having lunch uh, in Hawaii with Priscilla Presley. Now, all of a sudden, it's on the Hollywood side of the pond, as they say, the Pacific. Uh, Priscilla Presley is dating younger uh, NFL uh, player Russ Francis. We had a mutual friend that was one of my charter customers who was at the table, a woman named Marge Garmhausen, never forget her. She and Priscilla were good friends. But Priscilla was very sitting right next to me, very, and she'd put her hand on my hand. Well, oh, that's so funny, that's so nice. I'm gonna teach her how to surf and all that type of stuff, because Marge asked me to. So even the quote-unquote celebrities of the day, Bill Lee, Spaceman, I just talked to him the other day. He was the guy that said to me at Daisy Buchanan's, I said, how do you guys get away from people just arguing with you? I said, I don't mind the fans coming up to you. I'll sit until the last, Autograph is signed. I still do it. I get a couple hundred uh, uh, requests a month. Every single one of them is signed and sent back. Um, how do you, how do you guys do it? He says, Russ. He said, just live your life. He says, stop, stop whining about it. This is Spaceman. He's just a great guy. He's a guy who lived his life. He's still he seven, living his life. At 77, he just told me the other day he struck out a 45-year-old with two curves and a fastball. That's so unbelievable. He said it works every time. He's still unbelievable. Fast pitch. Right. 77. Unbelievable. One of my
0: heroes. So a dormant NFL franchise in the mid-70s all of a sudden ignites. That 76 team captures the region by storm. You beat the defending champion Steelers in Pittsburgh. You beat the bag out of the Raiders here in Foxborough. 48-17. Should have beaten the Raiders in the playoff game, we all know that. You know, at that point in time, what were you thinking about the NFL and the New England Patriots at that point in time, Russ?
1: Well, first of all, Every one of us has moments in our lives that we'll never forget—good, bad, indifferent, or or puzzled by it, whatever. That first year, my rookie year, when I was really all by myself, and you know, guys tried. You know, Steve Zabel was tried to approach me. We had a little fight on the field, and then he said, "Well, this isn't right," and he was a senior guy, so you know, he's helping me calm down and everything else. But um, one of the things. That you you never forget are you're being sort of outcast, and then people get to know who you are. Howard Cosell is calling you all world. You're doing ABC Superstar competition, and setting the the record by the way, which stood for years in the pool until Greg Louganis, an Olympian, beat it. Greg messed up my whole thing. Um, you can't remember, you can't forget those things, but if you think about how damaging the first year was, three and eleven. How hurtful that was. The fans were, I felt so bad. They're coming to the stadium, and we lost again. And we lost We lost 11 times. They would still be out there getting an autograph at the end, but the line was smaller. (laughs) And I just felt our job is to win. So we got together, and Coach Fairbanks got Mike Haynes and Tim Fox the next year and everything else, and Stanley Morgan came back early from Tennessee, and uh, Steve Grogan from Kansas. And we got there early before camp, and we started, we're not going to, let this happen again. Well, it takes every single person, not just one guy standing up and putting his hands on his hips and says, let's let's go uh, break the gates, men. It was everybody working together and we went 11 and three, the largest, quickest, biggest turnaround in NFL history, and went on to play the Raiders and we should have won that game. It's the only game I played, and I would say this, I've been saying it for years, that I'm absolutely positively sure that somebody, got to somebody mm. and I won't talk about payoffs or anything else. There were too many calls in that game, not just the Ben Dreith call or anything else. There's three or four major calls where they would turn away and look when you looked at the official just kind of like like this. And Ben was one of those, uh, one of those plays with me holding the ball, hits me in the chest, and Villapiano's got his arms around me. I got Villapiano back when he came to the Pro Bowl, he and his wife and they wanted to fly to Maui and I had the charter service. And I took him up in the single-engine airplane because I wanted us to be nice and cozy in the cockpit because I had this already thought out and planned. Get mid... Does the FAA listen to stuff like this? I don't know. This is 1976, I think it was. 75. No, 76. So so 77, beginning of 77, if they want to check the records. So we're going between Maui, Molokai, and Lanai, from Oahu to Maui. He and his wife were taking there for nothing. They were there for the Pro Bowl. This is the guy that held me and helped us lose that game. They go on to win the Super Bowl. So I said, look at, I tipped the wing just a little bit like this to look at uh, Lanai, which is right down there. Molokai's there, Maui's right there. I said, look at that, Phil. And he went to do it, and I grabbed the handle of the door and opened it up, and I kicked opposite rudder to take the wind away from the door. The door flew open. And I undid his seat belt, and he thought that he'd be able to uh, go right out the door. Well. He came close. But I kicked. I was just starting to kick the plane back when Patty, his wife, came over the top with nails and everything. You're trying to kill my husband. <laughs> the plane's going like this all over the place. I finally slammed the door. I said, I'm just playing. I'm just kidding. Just having a good time. He didn't think that was funny. But we're still good friends, I think, aren't we, Phil? Aren't we somewhere? So
0: I could see, uh, and I don't p- proclaim to know you or John, And I'm just using him particularly as an example, but this free spirit, this, I'm going to live my life. I've got a lot of talent, um, and I want to get to something following that up. But a guy like John Hanna, farm-raised, you also, you know, raised, you know, did a lot of work and everything like that. He's a no-nonsense kind of a guy. How do those uh, personalities on a team mesh? Do you feel like you need to prove something to a John Hanna type who's, not in an airplane dipping and bobbing and weaving and doing things like that or, or jump- flying back and, or jumping out of planes even for that matter. I always wanted to take him up and push him out of an airplane. How, do, how does that Sorry, John. How does that sort of jibe where you can gain his respect, you gain his, and you just, we're different people, but we do have the same goal in mind because we want to win.
1: Well, first of all, John Hanna is the greatest offensive lineman that ever played, bar none. Now, I'm talking about practice and games. I'm talking about longevity, being able to play as hard as he played every single down. Um, I pity the guys in the classroom in practice because it's full speed every day. I'm doing half speed with the linebackers because you work on footwork. He didn't need work on footwork. It was all natural to take that 280, 290-pound body and swivel from a stance down by the ground and be to the outside before the fullback can get there, Sam Cunningham. That's a real quick, and and miss the center, miss the quarterback, and miss everybody else, the footwork that it takes. And then to take that linebacker and take him to the sideline, or take him, knock him down, go on for the safety. John Hanna is a freak of nature. And he said one time, and we are very, very different. I love to live life, but when when I step across the line, the sideline or the end line, I'm a different person. Um, I'll I'll go and run and hit the sled and, and do the stairs and all that stuff, and it may look like I'm having fun, which it is. But if I'm on there to practice or play, all that stuff went away. John and John didn't know how deep and serious all of that was. You can He wears that on his face and his body and everything else. You don't see it in me. But line up across from me and try and beat me at the line of scrimmage or cover me in a play, and you'll find out. John made the mistake of saying to the Boston Globe, somebody, probably Will McDonough or somebody, uh, You know, uh, Russ Francis has uh, more talent in his body, uh, 1% of his body, than the rest of us. If he could learn how to use that talent, he'd be a great player. Well, John didn't know at the time was, I was dead serious every single time. I may be smiling, but I'm going to put you on your back. And so that started to happen. So it took a couple of seasons. Even after the 76 season, for John Hanna to come up and kind of slap me on the back and say, okay, you've made the team, their team.
0: Do you feel validated at that point? Does that does that um, uh, validation for, for, from a guy like John Hannes, who you obviously respect and was already a great pro and everything like that, what does that mean to you when you get that?
1: Well, first of all, our, in our family, we were taught by our parents and our grandparents and everything else. to to understand what we can and can't do and work to get better. Just because somebody's better doesn't mean that at some point in time you're not going to be as good or better. So focus on yourself. Don't worry about everybody else. So whether John thought I was a really good player or not never crossed my mind. The fact that he was saying something in public, say it to my face. That was what got my, no, so I went straight to him face to face. I said, don't ever do that again, Mr. Hannah." You know, and I respected him. So for him to come up and pat you on the back later and everything else, I already knew that I'd passed that point. I didn't need anybody to, I have never needed a slap on the back. I did appreciate being his teammate, because being accepted as his teammate, now I can be part of this group. And I'd been on teams before that really, really um, did well, because everybody understood their roles and their responsibilities, and they carried them out. And they didn't try to do your job for you. As Bill Walsh said, find your highest and best use. Focus on that. When he told me he wanted to pull me out of retirement, and he said, you're not gonna throw the ball like you do in New England. I had a 45-yard pass to Dwight Clark, however, with the 49ers. Hmm. We have a quarterback, his name is Joe. You're not gonna run with the ball. We have a running back named Wendell Tyler and Roger Craig. He said, you're gonna block during the running play and run pass patterns and catch the ball and and hopefully score points for us. Um, I was just the tight end on the team. I wasn't Joe Joe Montana, I wasn't Steve Grogan. I understood my role, I wasn't John Hanna. I couldn't do what John Hanna did, and John Hanna couldn't do what I did. So that's where the coaches like Coach Fairbanks and Coach Walsh, and the assistant coaches, Ray Perkins, Raymond Berry, all the guy Denny Green over in San Francisco, they Mm. put that chemistry and that talent together, and then they develop it more because it's so much stronger as a team, and all of a sudden, we're looking at uh, a, a season a year where we only lost one game. And that was because they called back a kick by Ray Wershing and he missed the second one. We had to beat the Pittsburgh Steelers and went on to beat Miami in the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 19. Yeah. Um, John, I see John Hanna today, so we move fast forward all the way from those days to this day. I have the most respect for him uh, because uh, of the way he's lived his life exactly the way he wanted to. He's, his family is tight and he's still, he's doing everything for his family that he can do and so is everybody in his family. He comes up here because he loves the fans, he loves his teammates, he loves the time that he spent here. But he's not going to leave a crop that needs to be brought in or something. Um, so you're going to have to schedule it for him. Absolutely. I have the utmost respect for John Hanna and all those guys that I played with
0: as a twenty-something year old kid you mentioned uh, abc superstars and there's probably people listening to this who have no idea what that is and uh... abc back in the day would gather the best athletes from respective sports reggie jackson in baseball uh, lynn swan in football yourself in football and you'd compete against each other in decathlon type items Right. here's a twenty-something year old kid who's being called all world tight end by howard cosell who's being invited to go on abc mm-hmm. superstars is your mind blown a little bit by this? Who's a guy who's not a football player and, you know, comes from a simpler life maybe in Oregon and a little bit Hawaii that all of this notoriety is coming your way?
1: <clears throat> well, I didn't watch much TV growing up, certainly sports, certainly never football, because that was never live until after I started playing. But um, Howard Cosell coined the all-world phrase my rookie year when I caught like a 40-yard pass in Miami on a Monday night game. Well, I've been catching, I think I averaged over 18 yards as a rookie. And what he didn't know, and I told his wife when they asked me to speak at his services after he'd passed, that um, um, the only reason I didn't tell um, Howard why I was catching such long passes is because I called him up when he started calling me all-world because my teammates started trying to beat me up in practice and roll me over, knee me in the ribs and everything else. The guys on the field playing against, saying all world my ass. Right, that can be, it's a blessing. and it's a curse. And they're coming after me. Right. So I said, Mr. Cosell, I'm really honored if you could, because I finally got him after like four phone calls. And this is before I started working for ABC. My rookie year, here's a rookie calling Howard Cosell. I still didn't really understand the importance of all these people. I'd never heard of him before. So you asked me earlier, about how did I deal with that? Well, I didn't know any better. So I just lit, lived my life. I said, Mr. Cosell, thank you for taking my call. It's such an honor for you to even mention my name on a Monday night game. I said, I have a big, big favor to ask of you. And he says, number 81. He said, all oh world. He said, what can I do for you today? And I go, oh, God. I'm just stumbling and, no, go ahead, anything. 81, come on. It's so good to hear. Thank you for calling. I'm sorry I missed your other calls. I've been busy with Frank and, and the GIF and everything and this and that and on and on. I said, Mr. Cosell, could you please stop calling me all world? They're killing me out there, my teammates and the other guys. Do you notice any silence right now? There was silence. And all of a sudden, that booming voice number 81 listen up and listen close get tough or get out click so um mrs cosell at his service they asked me um billy crystal myself and frank de ford the writer yes to, to speak at it because we had become i babysat their their grandchildren justin and jared who i think run espn now um, at the pools when we played in Miami and, and everything else, got to know them pretty well. Heather, their mother, a sweet gal. Emmy was just a sweetheart, um, a, a can-do, do everything kind of wife and mother. Um, I said I got to tell you the story. I said never got a chance to tell the story to Howard because I was afraid. And she goes, what? I said, you know that um, all-world thing that he. He kept calling. She goes, oh, he just thought you were a great player, she's giving me the same thing. And I said, well, the truth of the matter is, I didn't know how to read coverages or run past brands. So here's the truth. I'm <laughs> pouring it out. I didn't want to do this, especially at, at his services. I said, but I kind of felt like, well, Howard's here. We're all here together, right? So, um, but I called him up and asked him to not call me all world, and he slammed me down and said, get tougher. or get out. So I wasn't going to tell him. It's because Steve just told me to go straight. I didn't know how to run. It wasn't because I was a great player. It's because I had speed. Steve had an arm. We had Randy Vataha, Stanley Morgan, um, you know, a bunch of great receivers. Steve Burke, great uh, receiver from Arkansas, and this kid who didn't know anything about football. So I'm looking good because of all of them and a great offensive line. Um, So, you know, once Shelby Jordan and all the other guys got together. That 1978 team you're talking about, we ran over people.
0: Held a rushing record until just a couple of years ago when the Ravens, that record stood for 40-something years. Something we're very,
1: very proud of. And the one thing that the Kraft family, by the way, uh, on a couple of these alumni weekends when we come in for games, have made a real, uh, um, uh, uh, they've given us an opportunity to highlight some of the film when they show it to the fans, so they're up in the club boxes and everything. else. Sometimes on the screen of those teams with John Hanna coming around and Sam Cunningham, he was always fast enough and, and good enough for passes and everything else. When you send him out there first, 245 pounds, he ran a 4 five forty. Um, he just blow through people. There goes John, there goes, I'm looking for people to block, I don't have to. Right, and you mentioned receivers, and
0: i'd be remiss to not ask you about daryl stingley who you said you roomed with in your rookie year and when he got hurt i mean i remember watching it as a kid it was devastating to everybody in new england he's paralyzed he's paralyzed for life Um, and you took a stand russ that probably changed your life in a lot of different ways because ownership at the time it said that they were going to pick up his all his medical bills of course it's the right thing to do and then they rescinded the offer. What did that What did that mean and do to you in that situation?
1: Well, yeah, Darryl was my roommate on the road in in training camp for three seasons before he got hurt my uh, third year, be his sixth year. Um, um, he really took a lot of time. And I, I didn't pick things up that fast. I hadn't played youth football, I hadn't played but a couple of years of high school because my brother was a captain. I didn't play very well, didn't play much. One year in college. I was so far behind the curve, and Darrell was so patient. Um, and I was a player representative at that time. Daryl was the first guy to tell me as a rookie, he said, the, the teams just met and voted. I said, voted on what? And why didn't they let me know that hmm. there was a meeting? Well, Russ, you're not really their favorite guy. I said, but they did vote you to be the player representative, their union rep essentially, the NFL Player Association representative. Wow, I'm like a little kid. I right. grew up in Hawaii. I right, mean, that I, was you know, like
0: a penance probably, right? You uh, give it to give it to somebody that, you know
1: Oh, fantastic. Right. I said, Boy, that's an honor. He says, Russ, the reason they voted you is that guy's normally fired by management. <laughs> I he said, You're kidding. And he goes, No, I'm not kidding. He was he talked straight to me. Daryl's from Chicago. He he was everything was straight, and uh, just a really, really smart guy and how things worked and everything else. And uh, so I became the player rep, and when he got hurt, um, um, the, the league covers a career-ending injury uh, 365 days, and the team's supposed to pick up, and they probably can contribute some too, like all the other teams. After that year is up, the team then has to take over. On the 366th day, Jack Sands, Daryl's attorney in Boston, called me up, told me they just canceled his medical coverage. They're not, they're not going to provide medical coverage. So I sued the team and the league. So um, we found in favor, the lawsuit found in favor of Daryl, middle of the 1980 season. I finished the season, and then I retired.
0: Because you were so upset about this.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was going to stay in, uh, I did stay in, to see the lawsuit through, and to push it, and to what do we need to do? What do we need to do? What do I know? Right. You know, I'm a football player. Right. But I had great guys working w- with me. You know, Peter Had Hazy, who's now with the league office and everything else, who knew Darrell well as well also, and the Rooney family, doing the best they can. So um, as soon as that season was over with, um, I went on a long motorcycle ride, which we used to do in Muskogee, Oklahoma. Jump out of airplanes ride down to Killeen, Texas, visit our friends down at Fort Hood, and then ship back to the or run back to the West Coast. By the time I got to the West Coast, went back to Hawaii, I called Mr. Sullivan up. I said, I'm coming over in two days, I'd like to meet with you. And I met with Mr. Sullivan and I said, I'm I'm sorry, um, um, I'm not playing anymore. And I retired. I didn't say anything about it at the time because I didn't want any reflection on the team, or really Mr. Sullivan. So, so you
0: retired. Was it was that an easy decision for you? And I think the thing that Patriot fans will find interesting, before you know somebody convinced you to come back and play, who called you with a job opportunity when you retired?
1: Nobody called me. Um, well, there were some calls after I retired. I don't remember who they were. Um, but I do remember.
0: Was there an opportunity in broadcasting for you?
1: It was towards the end. I was still doing ESPN and ABC, Wide World of Sports Broadcasting, from time to time. So I got to do the Pro Bowl. Well, the 49ers had just won their first Super Bowl, the 1981 season, the one that I was out of. So the championship coaching staff gets to coach the AFC or NFC side. Bill Walsh and his team was coaching the NFC. Um, all pros in Hawaii at the Pro Bowl because a group of us got the player meetings all to happen in Hawaii then we started bringing the owners meetings to Hawaii and gee whiz then the Pro Bowl showed up in Hawaii and then we did a contract five-year with a five-year option with the NFL um, uh, management council and owners That I'm still very proud of that we did and held that for 10 years so I'm interviewing Bill Walsh as the Super Bowl coach for ABC Sports so after we're done He says, you know that I went to college with your high school basketball coach, and really my surrogate father, second father, um, in uh, middle school, um, high school, my basketball coach, and then afterwards, teaching us how to throw net and everything. He was one of the few 100% 100 Hawaiians left. And he just turned 90 last September. And still walking the beaches, fishing, and everything else. Merv Lopes is his name. He and Bill Walsh were inseparable at San Jose State. I didn't know that. They were playing tennis. I knew they were playing tennis together. Bill would come over and play tennis with uh, Merv. But I didn't realize until I started putting together, when I started playing with Bill, the coaching styles. They're very, very similar, the way that they work with players. So Bill's coming to me, and he said, hey, listen, we're going to have dinner tonight, coach and and, uh, me and you, at the uh, beautiful Hilton uh, Hawaiian Hotel. Not the Hilton Hawaiian, the um, Kohala. uh, the, the big hotel uh, by Diamond Head. And so I turned to my coach as we're walking away. I said, what's that all about? He goes, he's going to offer you a job with the 49ers. I said, tell him to save his money. I'm not coming back. I'm having a great time with ABC, skydiving in France, surfing in Morocco. you know." And he said, just listen, Russ, just listen. So he did. He asked me to come back and play, and I said no. He asked me again, and I said no. He upped the price. I said, I'm not negotiating. He upped the price again. I said, I'm not, still not negotiating. He said, this is my last offer. He says, more than any other tight end in the league. I said, well, that's why I was getting paid before I left, more than any other tight end in the league. So that doesn't mean anything to me. ABC's paying me more than, more than that. And he said, just remember this one thing. It's the only chance in your life you're going to be able to work with a group of people that work to get better every single day from Ronnie Lott to Joe Montana, to, uh, Roger Craig, to all these great players. Um, ABC, you have a great crew and everything else, but you're just kind of by yourself. It's just you're doing this, you're doing that. You're the co-host, you're the co-host. He said, this is the only chance you'll get. And I, like two or three months later, I called him back up. I said, all right, this is the number. These are the conditions. I don't want any roommates in training camp. I, you know." I don't want any roommates on the road. I'm here to play football. I don't, so I had all my conditions. He says, done. It's a he nice said,
0: negotiation.
1: So, uh, I couldn't, you know, we went there and, and I played eight more years, six with him and two more here. So and I wanted to come back and finish with Raymond Berry, who I have the utmost respect for and uh, is one of my, another one of my heroes.
0: I'm gonna follow up on San Francisco in a minute, but I wanna go back to the broadcasting part, because I think, they Maybe as I remember it, or maybe it's misremembered, you're retired, no intention of playing football. And didn't Cosell, how was your entree into ABC? I know you were doing the Superstars, so they saw that you were you know, glib and personable and things like that. But your opportunity to do college football games, did Howard help broker that with you to get you into the announcing booth? How did that start happen when you first retired
1: from New England, Russ? I come back from a season here and, uh, excuse me, from my retirement, um, talking. To, I flew all the way over, I wanted to do it in person. My mother had taught us, the boys, to, if you're gonna do it, do it in person. So I'm flying back to San Francisco, from San Francisco to Hawaii, Boston, San Francisco, nonstop and then, so my chief pilot picks me up and he's a character, he's a former submarine sailor, so lack of oxygen for days and weeks at a time has certainly affected his brain and he said, heck uh, of a pilot, skydiving buddy of mine, motorcycle. He was one of the guys every year we went across country. Claw the Kid Boy Sky God. I won't give his real name, uh, but uh, that was his moniker that he put on himself. Um, so he picks me up at the airport, Honolulu, and he says, hey, listen, you got to call Howard Cosell back. He just called for you a little while ago. He said, no matter what time, day or night, because it's a six-hour difference, he wants a phone call as soon as you land. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't, so I said, well, it's going to have to wait till we get to the house, which is an hour away on the North Shore at a house on the beach. And he goes, he's not going to be happy. I said, Claw, Howard Cosell did not call me. We're friends, yes. But he's getting ready to go into the football season and everything else. There's nothing he wants to talk to me about. He said, Russ, he called you. And now it's a serious Claw face. So I called him up. And it was like midnight. Number 81, He just it just always ringing in my head. What a, what a wonderful guy he was. What a fantastic talent he was, but what a genuine human being he was. He said, it's uh, 6 o'clock your time. I said, I know I'm on the North Shore. The waves are breaking. Can't wait till tomorrow. He says, you need to get on a plane tonight, fly to San Francisco and take the, you know, all night and then pick up the 7 o'clock in the morning and get here by 10 o'clock or whatever to get where? He said, New York City, the limo will pick you up. You've got a meeting tomorrow with um, who ran? Uh, was it Rune? Rune Arledge running everything, and John Martin was running sports. That's what it was. He said, Rune Arledge and um, John Martin and myself. I said, come on, quit kidding around. He goes, no, I'm serious. They want you. I've asked them to consider you. To work with Al Michaels, Keith Jackson, and do a lot of the, you skydive, you surf, you do all these things. It's perfect. Yeah, it was Howard. Howard got me started into broadcasting. It's one thing to be receiving, as we are now. You you're thinking of everything that could work. The reporters are thinking of everything they want to get answers to. But when you're hosting and having to do the show, Howard brought me into New York. I came in the next week. Don Meredith, Frank Gifford, all those guys were there. I'm reading, learning how to read teleprompter for the first time. This one over here, this one over here, this one over here, and cards over here.
0: But what's fascinating, Russ, is here you are as a, so Howard gives you this opportunity, and as a neophyte, as far as broadcasting is concerned, you're gonna do a college football package, and the two announcers that you're gonna do with, this young Russ Francis who hasn't done any games, you get to work with Hall of Fame Keith Jackson, and will be in the Hall of Fame, he's probably in a 1,000 of them already, Al Michaels. Like, that's that's a small world when I think about that.
1: You know what I think of when I think of those two guys and that great opportunity that Howard gave me and Rune gave me and John Martin did? Um, And Keith had to agree, as did Al Michaels, that they don't just assign a guy to those guys. Um, My favorite memory is meeting Al in one of the early college games in Washington Seattle and I'd flown my little plane up from Eugene, Oregon because I'd already flown to the West Coast. And I said, come on, hop in, I'll fly it. We're, we're doing the Cougar game in, in uh, Pullman. I said, I'll fly over to Pullman. <laughs> Found out Al Michaels hates to fly. He said, don't ever mention that again, okay? Don't ask me how I got anywhere or did anything. I just, you want to fly to the games, you just do it yourself. But that's before Al Michaels was
0: Al Michaels. Al Michaels was on the rise as a young announcer at ABC who hadn't, you know, the, do you believe in miracles, hadn't necessarily, had, maybe that had just happened. Right, it right? Had,
1: yeah. Yeah, it, it, it did, um, but Keith Jackson was handpicking guys. Nobody had a memory like Al Michaels. Nobody had the enthusiasm and the passion when he's going to tell a story what happened 20 years ago for, you know, Hallis with the Cleveland Browns, or <coughs> Bill Walsh as an assistant to Halas and then worked his way up to becoming a Super Bowl champion. Nobody does that any better than, than Al Michaels. He just has a, a memory for detail. And Keith Jackson was the guy that, and probably Howard Cosell, those guys kind of picked and choose. You know, uh, Howard picked uh, Don Meredith and Frank Gifford and put those guys together. That was, Monday Night Football was all Howard's idea. Sure. Did you have fun doing it? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. Because I could just say what I had to say really short, succinct, and those guys could go. And then they'd ask me, really, they knew the game. They could have said why that guy blitzed when the other time he didn't because the left guard was pulling and coming right at him. They could have done all of that. But they said, why did that play? How did it develop so quickly? Well, Keith. You know, and Keith uh, said, uh, "Just mellow your voice." Because I was a little bit higher pitched back then. He said, "Just mellow your your voice out a little bit." I said, Because he's got that Whoa, Nelly" type of thing, and it's just beautiful, and it resonates. I said, "How do I do that? How do I get?" Because I'm naive, and, and I, on one side of me is, and the rest of it's, "Don't get in my way," because I'm I'm coming. Uh, I'm going to figure this out real fast. The only way I know to figure it out. The self-taught and competent is the act asked the master. Master said, "So how do I mellow my voice out and get it strong like yours?" And he looked at me like I'll never forget. We're sitting in the booth getting ready to do a game. Whiskey, <laughs> lots of whiskey. And uh, those are the memories of he and, and Al that I have. Um, and Bob Yaddy and I did uh, uh, skiing, men's pro ski tour for ESPN. We did every you know weekend. Uh, He was a fun guy, but a professional. He did the, the, I recommend to Mike Pearl, who's producer at ABC, one of the best ever, uh, to do the National Skydiving Championships. I'd jump out of the plane with the teams that were competing and have a skull mic on and call it in the air. Who's ever done that before? Nobody's done it before. So, um, uh, you know, Al Michaels and all those guys would play off of all of those, Different things that you did that separated you from from everybody else, but they taught me how to prepare for it. Mm. They taught me how to set the teams up to interview who the best jumpers were and everything else.
0: So let's go back to San Francisco and, and this negotiation that you had with Walsh. Walsh finally wears you down. You come to the decision. I'm going to play. And you play for those that great organization. You know uh, the Super Bowl. It was Montana versus a young Dan Marino. You win a Super Bowl. There's so much of an emphasis on winning, and you were Super Bowl champion. How important was that in your career, Russ, as you look back on it, to have your career validated by winning a Super Bowl, being part, excuse me, of a Super Bowl championship team?
1: Anybody that plays high school, college, professional football, wants to be in the last game, the championship game. And we've got close a couple times here with the Patriots, so when we started out just beating everybody up with San Francisco, and we knew we had a good team. Eddie DeBartolo Jr., who was the owner of the team, his sister and her husband, John York, and Denise York, they now own the team. Eddie's relaxing in Florida. He brought on a guy named Bill Walsh, and he brought on some great coaches. Um, I um, I hesitate to say that it was just Bill Walsh or just Eddie DeBartolo, but they had to pick the chemistry and the talent on that team. You don't just find a Joe Montana coming out of Notre Dame and had an okay college career and know he's going to be a Super Bowl, multiple Super Bowl champion. Bill Walsh is one of the smartest, most decent, he's since passed, um, hardworking, find a way to get it right kind of guy and challenges you to do the same thing and give you all the tools and all the training and everything else to do it. He had Sam Weish as the quarterback coach. Sam would teach Joe Montana his drops and everything else. But then he taught receivers better ways to break on patterns, to get separation from the defender, to help the quarterback. He said, otherwise, he's going to be watching that guy. If he's going to be able to cut in front, you need to bend it back a little bit to keep your back to that guy. So it was everybody working in concert. Because of Bill Walsh, Eddie DiBartolo made a very, very smart move. Bill lost, the first couple seasons were horrible, 79, 80. But then in 81, he wins the Super Bowl. Talks me out of retirement. I come back in 82, and there's a nine-week strike. And so then we put things back together in 83, and then in 84, we go to the Super Bowl, and then they repeat after that. Bill Walsh and Eddie Bartolo Jr. were the driving forces behind that. If you have those two together, the ownership front office, John McVeigh who was the GM working with Eddie and Bill, part of that three-man team, and then the coach, head coach, separating all the coaches, you can't don't bother my coaches, these are my coaches. Guys like Sam Weiss and others. Denny Green comes a head coach too. Uh, Bob McKittrick, offensive line coach. Just goes on and on and on. You don't have any choice but to win. And you know it, you see it coming. And you start digging in. That doesn't mean you take more hours hitting the sled or, or watching more film or anything else. It's repetition, and that's the other thing with Bill. Repetition, repetition, repetition. We'd run one play 50 times in one week because they, Miami Dolphins, have a way to look, make it look different five, 10, 15 different ways, which now we've seen them all. So when it happened, we just, everybody makes their adjustments. The thing with Bill is, when they call the play in the huddle, that may not be anything what you run at the line of scrimmage. If they, if somebody moves here, so we all change. There's no way to defend that
0: so you get that taste in san francisco and as your football career winds down and you see you talk about how important the organizational structure was in san francisco and how that was instrumental to their success when you look back at your former team here in new england and see that the the foundation that the crafts have built and along with bill belichick does you do you get a sense like oh yeah i i know what that culture is because i sort of grew up on, i you know i got a taste of it in san francisco and as it you know as you see it developed here in new england do you sense a little bit of a pride? Like, I was there at the ground floor. I wish we could have kicked the door open. We came damn close to kicking the door open. But look at what they've had now, with that organizational structure.
1: The first thing I think about is how wonderful and great Robert Kraft, Bill Belichick, are for the fans of New England. We came so close. We had a great um, run at it, so to speak, and we we brought more fans on board. Because of it, you know, people are still writing and still asking for cards or photos or whatever. But what Robert Kraft has done from being the guy in the stadium watching the games as a young guy and then to become the owner and to do what he's done and find a guy like Bill Belichick, who, by the way, was a a big fan and devotee of Bill Walsh, smartly, rightfully so, they're very similar. in that They're unorthodox. They're going to find a way to beat you. I have the greatest respect for for Robert Kraft because he's put all of those people together. And then Bill Belichick, the way that he's handled the coaching staff and the players, they're like a bunch of wild animals in the locker room. We have a pretty high level of intensity, of passion. Sometimes we can hold it back, sometimes we can't. Sometimes we seem really, really relaxed until you poke the bear. And then part of your ear comes off or whatever. And I'm saying that metaphorically. But Robert Kraft um, was a, um, a, an enormous gift to the fans of New England, the NFL itself. Owners can be really, really difficult to deal with. He is a smart man. He said, let's just do it right and we're going to win. And he brought the people in to do that. And Bill Belichick, you know, God bless his soul, He's had some tough years. He's had some fantastic years. He's the type of guy that he doesn't care what happened 15 minutes ago. It's what are we going to do now to get better to win. I want to be his tight end coach. Tell him that, okay? (laughs) Uh, Because he is so good with young players and seasoned players, and they're totally different makeups. The seasoned guy, you've got to walk a little tenderly, and Bill's really good at saying, well, what do you think about it? A young guy, you can say, I'm not really concerned right now what you think. I need you to do this one, release this way or that way. Or, we'll talk about what you think later on. He's really, really good with that, and so are his coaches.
0: Last one here for me, Russ, is and we talked a lot about football, and you mentioned what a wonderful life you've had, and as from an outsider's standpoint, I hear skydiving, I hear cattle farming, I hear um, surfing, surfing <laughs> uh, pilot, Yes, you played professional football, announcer, ABC superstars. You know, do you pinch yourself sometimes and go, man, you know, this is what I wanted to do and I've done it. I've done what I wanted to do in life.
1: You know, I do reflect sitting here with you, looking out at the field. I ran a couple of what I used to call glides. <laughs> and I could still step it off. It was okay. You let me hit the sled a little bit. <clears throat> you have to put ice on my neck. No, I didn't hit that hard. It brings back a lot of fond memories, and I am honored to have been part of that past. I know where my place is. This is the 2023 season, football season, the team's getting ready for. That's the focus, and I'm all for it, and I'll be there in the stadium yelling and screaming along with everybody else, so uh, it's been an honor. I look for the next thing. We're putting together a possible company someplace in the East Coast that has to do with airplanes. Um, I'll be flying a lot anyway and I still do fly a lot but that's a, a challenge so I'm looking to the next I don't live much in the past I like to go back and visit especially with my friends and my teammates and now you you know we'll be able to take some of this stuff that we get responses from because they've been watching you for years yeah. you and I are in the same boat right except you're more you have a lot more exposure on a regular basis and i truly am honored that you gave me this opportunity to speak. Thank you, Matt.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. I lied to you because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you one more. Aloha. And I mentioned Gronkowski. Aloha. Aloha. <laughs> Mahalo. Mahalo, yes. Uh, I mentioned Gronkowski. Do you watch? Do you look at a guy like Gronk who played for the team that you used to play for? and I mean, Marvel, bigger kid than you are. Um, I don't know if he was faster than you were at the time. Different strengths, but a guy who you could put on the line, And he'd knock a guy 15 yards past, a true tight end. And yes, you could send him up the seam, and he could run by linebackers. What did you think of him when you watched him play, Russ?
1: Well, first of all, you said the one thing that separates him, and I believe me, from most tight ends. You said a complete tight end that would block and have the speed to get downfield and have the hands. He's got incredible... A sense for the balls, your head comes around right here, and there's a little flash of brown. And you get catch your catch radius
0: very high, like you could put the ball almost any place with him.
1: Yeah, so one thing I would say about about uh, Rob Gronkowski is there isn't anything you can't do on a football field that he decides to do, and that's the goal of every tight end. And I work with some t- young tight ends from time to time that want to get a college scholarship or high school or a couple of young pro guys um, not in the coaching standpoint but just technique because i had to learn uh, from from the very very beginning i won't give you away one of my secrets i learned that helps tight ends improve quicker but to look at a gronkowski we're probably about the same speed i was four five forty i think that's probably what rob runs four five four six we're both in that range uh, i waited i played about they say it comes out in my card that was 240 <laughs> I played at 255. Now, when I got here, I was about 245. I quickly became 250 by hitting the sled. I never lifted weights. They said, you need to lift weights, put on more weight. You no, know, the muscle becomes stronger than the tendon, and it rips the tendon, and the muscle's supposed to give first. So I'm not doing any of that, so I'm going to hit the sled instead. So that put on weight. So I ended up weighing about 255 pounds. If I hadn't done more running and more stairs, I probably would have gone to two, you know, 65, 270, because you do build up muscle hitting those sleds but I didn't want to compromise my speed, so I stopped at 250, 255 pounds. Rob was probably, he's, we're about the same height, I'm probably not as tall as I was uh, hmm. when I started, but uh, nor will he be, he's about 6'6", 6'7". 6'5", 6'6"? Yeah, uh, just a big guy all around, and when he hits, he explodes. That's his number one quality in the running game. And he has the want to, to take that guy 15 yards. He's not just going to hit him. And the, the ball, the guy goes by, and he just lets him go. He's going to bury him. And when he runs a route, he's so fluid for a big guy. He's like a ballerina out there. You know, Lynn Swan used to take ballet lessons so that he could be quicker. And what a gifted receiver he was. I look at Rob Gronkowski, and I marvel at what he can do. And I can't wait till the next play. And the next play, oh, now he's playing in Tampa Bay. Uh, oh, is Brady there too? Oh, great, I get to watch both of them. Yeah, I watch him and I I do my, oh, Rob, that's a little bit early. Oh, that's a little bit late. You could have done this, you could have done that. I'm sure he, if he did look at any of my film in the day, he said, well, you could have done better on that, Russ. You could have done better on that. One of the best of all time and he will go into the Hall of Fame.
0: Off the field, did he have a little bit of Russ Francis in him as well? As maybe a free spirit, because there's a guy who definitely bangs the drum to a different beat. He's not just like everybody else, and I don't know if you've seen that him as you maybe look at him from afar or on social media and how he is. He's a different cat.
1: Yeah, well, not dissimilar to you. Tight ends are different to begin with. I mean, the offensive line won't claim us. Yeah, we go in to look at film for the running game. They put you over in the side over here. The receivers, you're not really a receiver, uh, so they're. Off running their little fancy little, you know, Daryl used to do, Stingley used to do these pirouettes. Try this, Russ. He's trying to work on my foot uh, coordination. So we are pretty much on our own, and we're fine with that. That type of mentality is just, just, who do I hit? Where do I run the pattern? How do I get better? And all that type of stuff. Well, I don't have, I don't do social media, uh, so I haven't seen him on social media. I could see where he is a real kick, uh, because. He speaks his mind, got a great sense of humor, and uh, you know he's done comedy shows and everything else. There's nothing that he can't do. Gronk is, is a rare specimen, a uh, rare physical specimen. I wouldn't be surprised if he went back and played with Brady again this next uh, coming season. And they could show up a week before and be ready to play.
0: Our guest has been Russ Francis. Russ, this has been truly an honor. Thank you so much for your time. It was great to see you. Great stories, great information, great career, great life.
1: Thank you very much, Matt, and I want to thank all the fans that watch your show, listen to your podcasts and everything else, for everything they've done for 48 years. Nancy Meyer and I came in together. She's still with the team in the front office. Got to see her today. Love her to death. Gave her a big hug. I want to give her another hug before I leave. Uh, But uh, the fans have been fantastic. They are why we got to play. They were there for us win or lose, in the snow, in the rain. They they couldn't, I couldn't have been, you talked about being privileged to meet these people, play with these people and everything else. The fans are, they're at the very top of the pyramid. Thank you very much.